You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. We're pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is General Stuart Goodwin, the Executive Director of the Indiana War Memorials Commission, and someone who, as much as anyone I've ever met in my life, and I've known him for about 15 years, gets things done. You ask, and he makes it happen. General Goodwin, we thank you for being on the podcast today, and I should also introduce our co-host, Danielle Shockey, CEO, Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. Danielle, as always, when we have you on the podcast, it's ladies first. Fabulous. I love it. Thank you so much, Robert, and thank you, General Goodwin, for joining us today. So executive director of the Indiana War Memorials Commission is a mouthful, and so for our listeners who may not fully understand what that really means... Can you tell them what that means and kind of what is in your scope of leadership, um, the 25 acres of property, and and what makes this a really, really special job that you do um, here in Indianapolis? Well, glad to. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you. It's an honor for me to uh, to be considered uh, with the group of people that you normally uh, normally interview. This all happened after World War I, uh, which was 1914 to 19... Uh, 17 and 1918 is when it was over. We were only involved with the last 19 months of the war, 1917 and 1918. And so uh, this is a war that killed 55 million people. Really uh, big numbers when you think about the wars, other wars that we've had during uh, during our history. And so uh, there were 10 million military killed, 7 million civilians, and then 50 million people died of that pandemic. And uh, usually before 2019, when we talked about pandemic, people would just kind of, you know, shake their heads. And now that we've been through one or getting through one, uh, this pandemic that, w- that happened then after World War I was totally different than the one that we've experienced now, because this uh, pandemic that we've been doing is uh, basically attacks people that are 65 and older. The pandemic back in those days uh, attacked people that were between 20 and 40. And so military people, young people that, uh, that uh, were greatly influenced by this. And it was, it was a time, and I, I, now that I've been through the pandemic in 2019, uh, and how we were just kind of lost at the very beginning, didn't know what to think, didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, you heard the very worst, you've heard the, what might happen. Uh, well, when you think about all the technology and all the communications that we have now, that tells us things and people are doing tests and we get a, you know, we get a vaccine very quickly. Think about in 1917, 1918 timeframe when uh, they didn't have 24 hour news, they didn't have instantaneous uh, knowledge about that business. And so the other thing that happened is that World War I was a war where we actually rode into that war on horses and we flew airplanes out of the war. And so what happened was that uh, what spread this uh, pandemic so much faster than what happened with us was the fact for the first time we had people going from continent to continent uh, on uh, on airplanes and they didn't know about masks they didn't know about spreading it they didn't know about all the different things which is why it spread so quickly well anyway uh, 
the question about what, why the commission became about was because after the war, uh, the Hoosiers started to count how many people had served and how many people had died. And it turned out there were 135,000 Hoosiers who served and 3,709 who died. And so what they, uh, another term that has been very popular lately, uh, special session, uh, they had a special session of the Indiana legislature in 1920 to put together a plan about how they would honor these Hoosiers who served and the ones that died. And so what they did was in 1920, they had this special session. And what, what came of it was the fact that they decided to allocate two city blocks that turned into five city blocks. And they allocated $2.2 million at a time when a gallon of milk costs a nickel. So we're talking about real money here uh, to honor these Hoosiers. And that's what, uh, where our properties came about. And what they did was that they decided that each congressional district should have a, a representative uh, because it is, we are a state agency. The, you know, the, uh, the uh, governor watches over us as, as he does all the agencies. And so what happens is that uh, this was something that uh, was very interesting because to help finance this, they actually took some money out of the, out of the soldiers' pockets of money that they had coming to them at the very end. And the thing was that uh, that was one of the contentious part about it. And so I've heard you tell the story general about how you were ultimately asked to serve as this executive um, director role. And in my mind, I picture you at home eating ice cream, you know, chilling out for the evening. So tell that story about the phone call um, when you actually got asked to serve in this, in this amazing position. Well, you may be thinking about the one that happened recently with with Governor Holcomb on the on the on the first uh, first term uh, to go to his second term. Uh, of course, the agency heads we all talked to each other, and each each governor. And I've had the honor of uh, working with uh, Governor Daniels, Governor Pence, and Governor Holcomb. Each one time, it's been different, and so we're all talking to each other. Have you heard anything? And you know, have you known anything? No, nobody's hearing anything. They, some of, the, some of the higher cabinet level positions were, were chosen. And um, of course the ones that are down, you know, farther down the road, we just, we hadn't heard anything. And so what happened was I was sitting there watching a game one night, sitting on the couch and the phone rang and uh, he says, hey, it's Eric. And uh, he's not Eric anymore. He's uh, the governor or sir. And so I said, hey, sir, how are you doing? And he said, uh, you got a minute to talk. Uh, yes, sir, I sure do have a minute to talk. And so uh, he said, I want to talk to you about, uh, you know, about being in my administration. And I said, well, uh, that's, that sounds great. Well, before we go any further in the military, you're taught that somebody senior to you calls you. The goal is to get off the phone as fast as possible. This is not the time to talk about problems. This is not the time to bring up your favorite pet peeve that you want the, you know, the, the boss to tell you about or to do something for you. And so uh, I, he says, you can let me know. And I said, I can let you know right now. You know, I'd, I'd be honored to do that. And uh, so this, this, was the, this was actually, this was the first time. And so what happened was that he said, uh, you know, that uh, I'm trying to get off the phone with him. And he said, uh, hold on, hold on. He says, I got some things I want to ask you about, talk to you about. Oh, yes, sir. So we went on and on, and I, uh, I'd known him since back in the Daniels days, and just a really nice guy. And uh, so we were winding up the conversation, and he said, he says, I want to tell you something. And I said, yes, sir. He says, I want you to, to know that I don't believe in mandatory retirement. And I about fell off the couch. Uh, I couldn't think of anything that would be more um, congratulatory than for him to say that, uh, especially in today's world where, you know, different groups are, are, you know, castigated because of their age or because of whatever. Um, but I got to tell you, he's, uh, he's a great boss. And the fact that he's a veteran, I think that's very important. And uh, he and, uh, and the first lady have just been nothing but kind to me. And uh, they, some of the things that we do for them is that sometimes they'll have people come in town uh, and they need they have an hour or two hours before their plane takes off and he sends them over and we take them on a tour and uh, actually we've got some donations that way as well so it's uh 
it's the best job, obviously, that I ever had. And I, you know, I was the chief of staff for the Indiana Air National Guard, then the commander, and then the assistant adjutant general. So those are pretty good jobs, but uh, nothing like this, because the best part about this job is that I get to be with veterans all, all the day. And uh, the, some of the stories and the other thing that, uh, that may be interesting to you is that about uh, seven or eight years ago, uh, we started working with hospices. And so now we're working with eight different hospices in central Indiana. And so what happens is that the different, uh, the different organizations, they, they find out they have a veteran on their service, somebody that's uh, you know, gone into that program and is close to passing. And so we get, their, uh, we get their 214 or their discharge papers and we memorize them and we go sit with them. And uh, I, could tell you, I could just sit here for hours and tell you I've probably done 400 of them. And um, we want them to leave this planet knowing that their service was honorable. Uh, we want them to know that somebody cares about them and we want them to know that they did something that only one out of 10 people who live in our country today have done. And so it's, uh, in, in the stories just, you know, I don't want to take all the time up about this, but um, I can tell you that there's, uh, I'll just tell you this one story. And so well, this guy was uh, in Europe, he'd been in World War II, he was 97 years old and um, he had earned a Purple Heart. And so, but I couldn't tell on his discharge papers what battle he was in. And I was really concerned about the battle. And so uh, I, his name was Sonny. And so I asked him, I said, Sonny, tell me about, tell us about the, you know, the day you earned the medal. And, and it's really funny because these guys, 96, 97, I've, I've had them over hundred years old. And what they'll do is that you ask them a question and you can see that their mind is, my, the Rolodex inside their head is, is moving at about Mach 2. And they're trying to pull this up. They, they couldn't tell you what they had for breakfast, but they could tell you who their first sergeant was in World War II. And so he's trying to get that information. And he said, uh, I said, you know, where did you get it, Sonny? And he said, in the butt. And I said, no, not the bullet. I said, what battle, what battle were you located in? And of course, the whole, there were 40 people in the room and there were four generations of people. And the next thing you know, the guy, those people are on the floor laughing. And I'm, I'm just silly, you know, I'm struck silly about, I don't know what to say. And he and I don't think it's that all that funny at all, but, but they're laughing their heads off. And I said, no, Sonny. I said, Where, what battle were you in? And, uh, and, and Robert, you'll get a kick out of this. He was in the Battle of the Bulge, one of the worst times in the history of our country. And uh, he got shot in the butt. And this, there was this crazy uncle that was sitting over in the corner. And he said, all he probably got was running away from the enemy, which I wasn't going to put up with that for a minute. And so I said, no, hold on here, bud. Uh, I said, a lot of people get that, you know, get shot in the butt. And the reason is because when they're laying in a prone position, their bottom is, is one of the highest points of their body. Well, you know, he, rah, rah, you know, he's grumpy about that. I said, you yeah, know, this guy wasn't, a, he's, he's a hero. He got shot. And so anyway, to finish this up real quick, what happened was I was walking out the door and this little lady comes walking up to me. She's about four foot nothing. And she said, uh, General, can I give you a hug? Absolutely. So she gives me a hug. And the next thing you know, she says, I want to tell you something. And I said, well, what's that? She said, I've been married to that man for 69 years. And I never knew where he got shot. Now, I'm thinking being married to somebody for 69 years, you'd know everything about that person but it just goes to show about the fact they didn't talk about those things back in those days. And the fact is that uh, talking to these guys and just you know, telling them stories and hearing their stories is definitely the, one of the best parts of my job. No, thanks for sharing that story, General. Um, and I've heard it before and every time it gets me. So it's a, it's a good one. It, it, I think it tells a great picture of a service you provide. So Indianapolis and, and, and you know, the, the properties and the activities that you do really is like no place else in the country. And so I know, and I don't want to, I don't want to be wrong, but aren't we like second only to one other part of the country in the number of memorials that we have in central Indiana? I, I'll, that's exactly right. And I'll tell you a story that Governor Pence uh, brought to my attention one night. I was speaking and I didn't know he was going to be in the audience. And so after the, uh, 
after the speech was over, I got up and walked off stage and one of the horse holders, Robert will know what this is, in Civil War, they had somebody that hold, held the general's horse, you know, one of the staff. And so one of the, they hate it when we call them that too. One, the, one of the, you know, this, one of the horse holders teams up and said the governor was talking. Oh, okay, well, that's interesting. You know, so I walk up and I get his attention and he's, you know, he gave me the one minute type of thing. I said, so he said, we walked down the hallway and he said, he says, I want to ask you about something. He says, you know, this business, because we used to say we were second only to Washington, D.C. And so Governor Pence looks at me and he said, you know, another way that that could be said is that there's no state that has more monuments than we do. And I thought to myself, now there's a politician that we're not, we're going to be, Indiana is going to be number one. Absolutely. And so, yes, we have 48. We just dedicated the uh, Gold Star Mother Monument on last Saturday, which is beautiful. It's on the corner of St. Clair and Penn. And you got to go see it. It's made out of black granite. And it's, uh, it is amazing. And we had more Gold Star families there than any event that I'd been to in probably 15 years. And so, uh, and I was offered the chance to speak and, the, and Governor Holcomb spoke. And then Woody, uh, Woody Williams, the guy who, who started this, they have, I think they've built 80 of these now. And so he is the only living World War II Medal of Honor recipient. And he spoke, he's 97 years old and he's sharper than I'll ever be. I mean, the guy is just amazing. Uh, didn't hardly use any notes at all. and was just, just a really, uh, really interesting guy. So we have 48 monuments in Marion County. And then the other, the other fat, fun, kind of fun fact is the fact that there's no place in the country that has more acreage honoring veterans than Indianapolis. Uh, and that's the reason for that is that we take care of 25 acres, but Crown Hill Cemetery, which is the third largest non-government cemetery in the country, they have 27 acres and they have, uh, they have graves that stretch from uh, Vietnam to uh, to up to um, up to about uh, just before the actually they started in world they started yeah they started in World War II and they go to Vietnam and so the other and they have one Revolutionary War grave out there so they have four thousand graves there and so what between the two of us we have more acreage than any other other place in the country so our listeners have heard it here first Indiana is the state with the most is what I heard you say. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Robert, did you want to jump in here? Well, I want to make sure, and I'm going to guess that most of the audience knows, but, but for those who don't, General Goodwin, please uh, explain what a gold star family is. Absolutely. Um, in World War I, they started a blue star program and a gold star program. And so what would happen is the families that had a service member that uh, was serving, would they put a blue star in the window? Would indicate that they'd had a, they had a, a person that was, uh, had, you know, taken the oath and put the cloth of the nation on their back and were serving. And when, when and if that they, they were uh, they were killed in action, then they, uh, the star turned to gold. And the fact is that uh, there's you know people tell stories about they had three four brothers that were serving in the military all at the same time during World War One, and they would put three and four stars in the window to just make sure that everyone was, uh, was accounted for. And I, if I remember right, if memory serves, I think the Gold Star Family uh, Program actually started in, in 1926, officially. But uh, one of the things that is very important about, about this, and I think, I think this tells a lot about Indiana, is the fact that the Indiana Code uh, that was put together in 1920 it says that these properties are, de are designated to honor veterans. There hasn't been a monument that's been put on that property since 1998. That's how high the standards are. And there have been three or four or five maybe uh, people who wanted to put monuments on the property, but they didn't meet the standards and the commission did not approve them. And so what happened was that uh, they met with us four times and it, uh, we eventually got to the point because there were, there were some people that thought, well, it doesn't say veterans' families, it says veterans. But the fact of the matter is the veterans' uh, families do so much for the, for the service member. Uh, they, in today's world, they just, uh, 
they have, you know, the technology and a lot of times one spouse had never taken care of the family finances and now they're, you know, now that's their job and to take care of the kids and to take care of all the things that go on uh, with the families. And it's, uh, it's just, a, it's a, it's, it was the right thing to do. And I think that, uh, you know, I, I even said in my speech, I said, the, the warriors fight, but the family also serves. Thanks for that. And thanks, Robert, for asking that question. So before I, before I leave my question time, Robert, can I ask a few more? Yes, ma'am. All right. So General, recently, recent months, right? I don't know, maybe pre-COVID, some big changes happened on Monument Circle. And you had, you had a lot to do with that. And so, first of all, if, if, if our listeners haven't been to Monument Circle of late, I would encourage them to do so. But talk about really the, the, the huge changes and, and the impetus behind those changes and why, if our listeners have not been down to Monument Circle, they want to make sure that they make it a, a summer destination. Well, we, uh, we were told that uh, the Lilly Endowment, was uh, they had some money that they wanted to put into the downtown area. And so uh, what happened was that the War Memorial Commission teamed up with Downtown Indy. So we, uh, Sherry, Sherry Seiward, who I know has been on this program, uh, great friend, and she, we sat down and we talked about doing a partnership between the War Memorial and Downtown Indy, Inc. And so what, uh, what happened was that we came up with a plan that we wanted to put uh, a light show and we wanted to put audio on the, uh, on the circle. And so I'm probably gonna get these numbers wrong, but I think there were something like 354 applicants. And I think they, they, they got it down to, I think there was around uh, maybe 16 or 17 that they chose. I do remember that there was only one that, was, that had more money involved in the grant than ours. And ours was around $8 million and that one was around $9 million. And so what happened was that uh, we do light shows every night now at dusk. And we uh, project images on the IPL building and, uh, and the building next door to it. And so what uh, happens is that we have, we have just an amazing team, uh, innovative with Conrad and, and Terry uh, are part of that. And then we've got... Uh, the Dodd folks and they're the one and zero people that can put all this stuff together. But uh, what, what we want to do is that we tell stories about the military. We tell stories about when we have special events, like when we had the, the uh, NCAA tournaments here and uh, telling the story about history and Indiana basketball history and that kind of thing. VE uh, day, victory over Europe, victory over Japan. When those days roll around, uh, we tell about uh, Hoosiers that have been deployed uh, we talk about a lot of different things, and it's just kind of a, uh, a good way to share that information. But, but I got to tell you, Danielle, the thing that, the thing that I think adds, adds to the circle as much as anything is that, one, it's not dark and, you know, dark and dingy anymore. It's, it's even, at, even when we don't have light shows, it's lit up. But the other thing I think is really cool is that it plays music. We play music downtown. And there's just something about, you know, the soothing the savage beast to rest, all that business. It's, it's just music. It makes it like home downtown. And I think that uh, it's one of the things that we're, uh, we're very proud to be involved with it. Uh, we do need to do some fundraising every year so we can keep it going because the endowment, as you know, once they get you started, then you're, you're on your own, which is fine. And so we're in the process of doing some fundraising and I think that uh, couldn't ask for a better partner than Downtown Indy. And so uh, we just, uh, I'm glad you asked that question because I had, uh, that's one I hadn't thought about talking about. But anyway, yeah, that's, uh, it's great. And it's every night at dusk. And then we do a thing at noon. We play the Star Spangled Banner at noon and uh, trying to educate people about stopping and putting their hand over their heart. And that's gonna take a while, but we're working on it. No, you're right. I was down last week um, for lunch and it's a it's breathtaking in the evening, but the music does make a difference. So have you have you seen it when the when the monument, the soldiers and sailors monument is wrapped in the American flag? No, it's like I said, it's breathtaking. I hope every single Hoosier who's listening and not listening gets to see it. And every person who ever visits 
our Circle City also gets to participate. We get um, books and cards and emails from a lot of people that uh, had no idea. Yeah, it's great. Um, and I do want to ask before we're done with the show, Robert, about the special um, relationship the Girl Scouts does have with General Goodwin and Flag Retirement. Um, but I want to turn it over to you for a bit, and then we'll come back to that later, if that's okay. Thank you very much. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer, and our good friend, P.E. McAllister, who served in the Air Corps during the, <laughs> second, the second World War. It was actually, uh, was um, the, most people don't realize that all the invasions were called D-Day. There is the the D-Day, June of 44, but all of them were D-Day in some regard. And P.E. McAllister washed ashore in North Africa, I think in November of 42, one of the very first in the in the what uh, European theater, as you would call it. Our guest on the Leaders and Legends podcast today is Brigadier General retired Stuart Goodwin, who's the executive director of the Indiana War Memorials Commission. A little bit more about General Goodwin. He was received two legions of merit, which is one of the absolute highest military decorations. He uh, is a sagamore of the Wabash. He's a member of the Indiana Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And something that I am sure is very close to his soul. He is an honorary survivor of the USS Indianapolis. General, we lost uh, in the last few weeks uh, some survivors of the USS Indianapolis. I know how close you are to them, how much they mean to you, how much that ship's record means to you. Please tell us a little bit about these two heroes. Well, um, I think that uh, Smith and, and Edgar Harrell, James Smith and Edgar Harrell, they uh, meeting these meeting these men and, and I got to tell you, Robert, when I started in this job in 05, um, there were 1196 men on the ship 30th of July it was struck by uh, two torpedoes from the uh, Japanese submarine I-58. And so um, they actually shot six torpedoes and two of them hit one 40 feet from the bow in the front. And then the second one hit at, at midship where this ammunition and the fuel is stored. So the ship actually broke in two and sunk in 12 minutes. And uh, I mean, it is, people talk about having honors uh, to, to sit down with these folks. And uh, we actually are the ones that started their, their museum and, and put it in the Indianapolis, put it in the War Memorial. And so 1196 out, you know, go off the ship and 316 uh, came out of the water. The, the gentleman that one of the gentlemen, uh, Edgar Harrell uh, from Tennessee, and he was, uh, he was a Marine. Now there were 39 Marines uh, that were on the ship. And so their job was to guard this box that had mysteriously landed on the middle of the ship. Actually, it, ac it actually blocked the hangar where the airplanes used to come out. They had four, four airplanes. And so um, the, I became very close with him uh, throughout the years. And the fact is that he was a very religious man, knew him much better than I knew Mr. Smith. Uh, but the fact is that he talked about the, the, uh, the fact that it was God's will that he came out of the water and to hear the stories about how they were in the water for four and a half days with sharks attacking them. A lot of them didn't have, uh, they didn't have uh, life preservers. Some of them just, just were bobbing up and down in the water and with nothing to eat or drink for four and a half days. And on day three, it was that uh, some of them started to drink the salt water 
and it just makes your mind go crazy and you lose all, all sensibility. And uh, they thought they were seeing islands out in the water and they would break away from where the, where the guys were, they were in little groups and that they uh, were actually just swimming out into the ocean. But I can tell you that uh, every one of them that I ever met was uh, a special person. And uh, I know you've been around Medal of Honor recipients. Uh, they're, they're cut from the same cloth. Uh, they don't think they're special. They don't think they did anything special. They just did their jobs. And so uh, it's, it is so uh, humbling to be around those folks. And the fact is that they, uh, they just, they just want to tell, you know, tell their story. And so one of the things that uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even sure that this has been made public yet, but uh, the talk is that when the, the last survivor dies, that the families and the, uh, the legacy committee, the, the, uh, the survivors committee are gonna continue to have the reunions every year because this is a story that just, just needs to be told. And so we have the second watch, we have the family members and we have the lost at sea folks uh, who really, uh, I believe had the toughest time with all this because in many cases, all they received was a telegram. Their families, all they received was a telegram. They don't have any, any dog tags. They don't have any uniforms. Mm. They don't have anything to uh, continue to tell that story. And it's, uh, it's one that now that we're telling. And I think that uh, we've, we decided that uh, we were going to build this. Uh, we were going to build this museum for them, and uh, if you haven't seen it, come and see it because it's. Uh, we now have uh, we have digital things where you can punch a. You know, you can put a person, one of the survivors' names in somebody that was on the ship, that uh, you know, and you can track them. And, and where's I, the museum located? It's right in our building in the War Memorial. Just a just a real quick story, Robert, about. Uh, you probably, for a long time, they kept saying there were 317 uh, survivors. And what happened was, this is a great story because there was a gentleman, and for the life of me, I can't remember his name, but you know, they were walking, these, these folks were walking up the, the ramp to get on the ship. And just as uh, this one fellow was getting ready to go, uh, somebody pulled him out of line and says, hey, you're, uh, you've been selected to go to officer school. And so he backs down off of the ramp and, but his name never came off the list. Oh. And so what happened was that the, uh, the Navy called his, after, after the accident, uh, the Navy wasn't really an accident. It was a, you know, when it, it, it was, the, the ship was sunk. The Navy called his parents and said that uh, on behalf of the secretary of the Navy, da, 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 um, we're sorry that your son, has been lost at sea. And the mom says, you're crazier than a bed bug. I talked to him last night. <laughs> God love the bureaucracy of the military hierarchy. Gee, many Christmas. <laughs> is, there a, is there a particular Hoosier leader or legend whom you admire? Oh my gosh. We'd be here a lot longer than I have time. Uh, obviously, Sammy comes to, to comes to mind. Uh, and I was just going to say, and you can't say Sergeant First Class and Medal of Honor recipient, uh, Sammy Davis. And you can't say uh, James O'Donnell either. Okay. Uh, you're going you're to make this real difficult. Or John McGough. Or John, yeah, okay. <laughs> or John McGough. Um, you know, I think that... Uh, the criteria that you've established is going to be real difficult for me to come up with just one, because I tell you, Robert, every day I hear stories and it really, it really changed my life about the way that I talk to veterans. And that is because uh, the first six months or so that I was there, um, actually the second day I was there, I made a rule about uh, anytime a world war II veteran would come into the building, uh, it doesn't matter where I am, just call me, I wanna, I'll, I'll go up front and meet them. And so, yeah, I'm in the middle, if I'm in the middle of meeting, even if I had a meeting with you, Robert, I would say, excuse me, but I've gotta go, I, sorry, Robert, I know you're important, but uh, in this case, I gotta go see this World War II vet. 
And my father was a World War II vet. And so he was an army combat engineer uh, in, the, in Europe. And uh, he, uh, he rebuilt bridges in France, mostly after Hitler blew up the bridges. And so, you know, uh, the greatest generation with, you know, without a doubt, Brokaw had it right. But I'd, I'd hear these guys because, you know, how it is when veterans get together, you say, you know, hey, what branch were you in? And then you jab them a little mm-hmm. bit about which one, you know, which branch they were in or whatever. And, uh, and then the second question probably most asked is, well, what did you do? And I'd hear these guys say, I was just a cook. I was just in supply. I never killed anybody. Uh, I never left the United States. And it was one day, and I swear, I wish I could remember the guy's name because it was way back in, in 05. But this guy said he was, you know, he was just in supply. And I, I stopped him and I said, excuse me, but you have got to quit saying that. Because when you diminish your service, you diminish the service of all of us. And here's what I would ask you to think about. People like us uh, who have served make up one out of 10 people who live in our country today. So we call it the 90-10 rule. We think that uh, it's time that the 90% who didn't serve understand about what the 10% who did serve, what they did so that we can all live free. And I asked this guy, I said, well, you know, you were in supply and did you ever think about the fact that if you didn't do what you do or did, the beans and bullets wouldn't have got to the front lines. And the fact is, you know, the trucks wouldn't have fuel. Uh, There wouldn't be bullets for the airplanes or the weapons. And he looked at me and he said, I never thought about it like that. And I said, well, what I would hope that you would do is that you would just think about how important that is. You know, I had a, I've had guys say, I was a cook. You know, I didn't, I didn't do anything. I was just a cook. Well, listen, bud, if you didn't cook, people didn't eat. And the, ask, and the truth of the matter is that I, you know, I've looked at hundreds of Manning documents over the years. I've never once seen one that said E5 Sergeant Fluff or not needed. Right. Everybody's job was important. And one team, one fight, you know, the deal, you know, that's how we're put together. And so what we want to do then, and and that's the, that's really the mission about the war memorial, because what we want to do is that we're not going to teach them about strategy or tactics. We're not going to teach them the ranks. We're not going to teach them the battles. We're not going to teach them any of that stuff. But what we can teach them is that we can tell them about ordinary Hoosiers who have done extraordinary things. You mentioned a few minutes ago about members of the military honoring everyone else who served while at the same time, you know, talking a little smack and giving a little jab and that sort of thing. And that's part of it. And it's, it's one of the most fun parts of it. Is there anyone who you've enjoyed jabbing more than? Gregory A. Ballard, USMC, and talk a little bit about your friendship with him. Both of Mayor Ballard's inaugural ceremonies were held at the War Memorial, and uh, there hadn't been a, a veteran in the mayor's office uh, since Richard Luger, unless my memory's failing me, but I think that's true, and and uh, you two have a very special friendship. I know he loves you. He thinks the world of you and your service uh, but you're an Air Force general. He's a Marine Lieutenant Colonel. I was just an Army Corporal. But it was fun to be in your presence as you as you interacted. Tell us a little bit about that friendship. Well, um, first of all, I have so much respect for him, uh, not because of what he did was as a mayor, but what he did as a service member. And the truth is that it was one of those things, Robert, where he and I just hit it off from the very beginning. And so, uh, you know, he and he gives as good as he gets. 
he's uh he's real he's real big about making sure that uh you understand and and there were several times i don't know maybe four or five times that he and i were on a dais together speaking and so uh you know he would uh he would it always seemed that he you know because obviously being the mayor was a lot more important than i was so i would speak before he would speak and he would be the last one to speak and so he would jam me up every time he got a chance. And it didn't matter how many people were there. And you, you see his, you, you knew him real well too. I mean, his eyes just lit up when he would get into that kind of a situation. So there was one night that, and I can't even remember what the event was, but there were 1500 people there. And it just turned out that for some reason, I don't know why, but he spoke before I did. And I, when he started walking up there, you know, I, I, you know, I, I grabbed on his, onto his jacket and I said, times have changed, buddy. I'm speaking after you. And he looked at me and he goes, oh my gosh, I forgot all about that. And of course, uh, you know, he jammed me up like he always does. And uh, I said something about how, how much I enjoyed our friendship and, uh, I, after it was over, he says, well, why didn't you say something about it? I said, well, maybe next time. I just want you, the fear of what the next time is, I'd rather you live with that than to just to, just to tack, tackle you one time. You mentioned about everybody's service in some ways being equal. I mean, the, the, whether you volunteer. And one of the great things about the modern armed forces, let's say 21st century, is the number of young men and women who volunteered for the military after 9-11. So if you volunteer for the military in time of war, you have dramatically increased the chance that you will be in harm's way. As I've mentioned several times in this podcast, my son Joshua volunteered for the army, and then he volunteered to be a combat infantryman and served two tours in Afghanistan. That's that doesn't diminish my service, but my service compared to his is they're just not on the same plane. So with the notion that everyone's service is equal, there are people whose service, whose service to the country stand out. And one of those obviously is our good friend, Sammy Davis, Sergeant first class who received the medal of honor in Vietnam. I find it difficult to be in his presence and not just either fall to pieces emotionally or just be in such awe of what he did and the lives he saved. Is that something, is that a feeling that occurs to you? You spent 37 years in, in the military. Do you still get that lump about particular people? Absolutely. Um, and the truth is that it's not, uh, it's not just the recipients. And the recipients are obviously, um, you know, they're, they're at another level. But I, I think you would agree with this, is that there are people uh, who never received the medal that probably had acts of, of heroism that were maybe even higher than some of the people who did. Uh, you know, we have, we have some guys in our, in our museum that, you know, they ended up with three, four Purple Hearts, and uh, but the fact is that when they were they were in service, they they their people skills were probably not what they should have been, <laughs> and so uh, nobody took the time to write them up. Um, but obviously, there's you know there's people, um, you know Sammy and all of the recipients I've met. There you can tell they're just cut from a different bolt of cloth from the standpoint that it's not about them. It's about uh, the people that they saved or the people that they served with uh, on at that particular point in time. Um, you know, when you think about the question that you asked me before that I've kind of been thinking about a little bit about, you gave me, you know, a list of people that you couldn't talk about. Um, a Hoosier by the name of Jim Castler, who was a uh, tail gunner, B-29 tail gunner in World War II uh, came back after the war and uh, went to Butler, 
graduated from Butler, uh, and then went back in the Air Force as an officer and uh, became a fighter pilot. And so uh, the next thing that comes up is Korea. And so what happens is that he, uh, you know, he's, he's an ace in Korea. He's got six kills. After that's Vietnam, 181 combat missions. And one night over the north, he was doing a bomb damage assessment run and uh, Sam surfaced air missile shot him out of the sky. And so he jumped out of the airplane and uh, he had a parachute malfunction. And when he hit the ground, he hit harder with one leg than the other. And the femur bone was jammed up into his intestines. And so he was in pretty bad shape and uh, took a couple days, but they finally, the VC found him. And uh, I think that went till, until the doctor actually got, got it, the VC doctor got his hands on him, uh, it was maybe around 10 days. And they took his femur, which is the big bone between your knee and your hip, and they cut that all out and replaced it with a piece of rusty metal pipe, which immediately got infected. And so uh, he, went, he went into the Hanoi Hilton with Stockdale, McCain, and, and that group. And he did six and a half years in the, uh, in the Hanoi Hilton. And his son, uh, also named Jim, James, uh, this was a time when he was going through the formative years as a young man without his father, who turned out to join the Navy and you'll remember when the Challenger went into the, uh, into the water, uh, Jim Kassler was a hard hat Navy uh, diver and was very much involved with the, uh, the extrication of the, his, uh, the parts and, and, and some of the other things that were coming out of the water during that time. This guy had two, um, I'm sorry, he had three Air Force crosses which was just below the Medal of Honor. And he's got three of them. If there was anybody that ever should have earned the Medal of Honor, it was Jim Kassler. And so it's important about having the hardware, but I think, I hope you would agree that there's something about these people that have been through this and has changed them. I think it probably has made them more centered. It's also told them about how important it is to, uh, you know, like the Bible says, we need to take care of each other. We need to look out after each other. And so whether it's a biblical reason or whether it's teamwork that they learned in the military, but the fact of the matter is that these were somebody that when they were pushed to their, their worst day of their life, they stepped up. And they did something that was honorable. And they, in, in many, many, many cases, like in Sammy's case, actually saved lives. Um, and I think, you know, when I think of something like that, I think, wow, I don't, I don't I never have to worry about that. But to have that responsibility is something that's pretty, pretty heavy. And to do what they do, I think, is, is uh, just amazing. Because I, I've told Sammy this before, you never know how many lives you've touched. And the fact of the matter is that uh, in, a, in a smaller way, I think all of us do that. I live in a world where I think people meet people because it's, it's destiny. It's what, it's what God wants us to do. And I think he always wants us to help. And, you know, you made a comment about, you know, getting things done and that kind of business. Um, I've had a lot of people help me throughout the years. And I, you know, for me to become a general and not being married, uh, almost ne never happens almost any time. And so the fact of the matter is that I, I think when you reach those ranks, uh, there's, and I, I, I tell people this all the time, it, it has to do with timing. It has to deal about your situation. And I think there's a lot of luck that goes along with it. You're reviewing a litany of 
of, of Hoosier veterans. And, and there's two names I want to throw out there because I want to make sure that we don't forget them because obviously the names are, are basically endless, right? You know, um, there are 15 members of my family in my generation, the generation younger than me and the generation older than me who served in the United States military, including an uncle who uh, drove a LST in Pacific. Was it Okinawa, Tarawa, Kwajalein, Bougainville? Um, and it's, it's a fun family thing. And I always felt that the Indianapolis veterans community or the Indiana, the Hoosier veterans community is like a family and two people whose service uh, we have uh, benefited from. And I just want to ask if you knew them very quickly before we uh, have Danielle uh, Shockey ask you the, the final five questions. And, and those two people are Andy Jacobs Jr., and former governor Joe Kernan. Oh my gosh. Uh, excuse me. Um, I'm sorry. Those are, are two two men. Andy Jacobs. Let's talk about Andy Jacobs first, Korean vet. Um, you know, we would have Veterans Day programs. And I don't care how cold it was. I don't care if it was snowing or sleeting or whatever. He would be in a, a suit jacket. And not once did I ever see that man with an overcoat on. <laughs> and if you know anything about, you know, the Korean War vets, uh, because of the Chosan Reservoir, and they refer to it as the frozen chosen, uh, just terrible time because they didn't have the right equipment that they needed. But at the the temperatures were just unbearable. Um, but such a, I mean, typical, I mean, you talk about the, the quintessential Hoosier, I think of Andy Jacobs. And just, you couldn't ask for a nicer guy. And you talk about the, one of the most unpretentious people I ever met was, was uh, Congressman Jacobs. Um, I'm sorry, but I get, I just get, I get a little teary when I think about uh, Governor Joe. He was one of my mentors and uh, really got to know him. Uh, we did the flyover for Governor O'Bannon's funeral. And I don't, I don't know if you were there or not, but it was on the uh, west side of the state house. And it was a beautiful day. And we had the Vipers come just north to south. Uh, and they were perfect. The timing was just perfect. And so I got to know uh, Governor Joe, and it was a, uh, I don't know, it, it, for some reason he took a liking to me, and so we just became friends. And there was a time when uh, we, you know, we would make arrangements for him to speak at different POW events. And um, for those that haven't followed, followed Governor Joe, um, he did 11 months in the Hanoi Hilton. He was a backseater in a, in a vigilante, which is a Navy, a Navy jet. And saying he's a backseater, he, he was a radio operator and a weapons operator. And so the pilot, and both of them have to be aviation rated, but the, the pilot sits up in the front and the, the Rio or the, uh, the weapons operator sits in the back. Anyway, they, had, uh, they were up on the North in Vietnam and, uh, they, they took a missile, they took a SAM. And so the plan was to try to get to the water, uh, to get to the ocean so they could, they could jump, get out, it wouldn't be in VC territory. Um, so what happened was that, that that didn't happen. And what happened was that they got captured. So, um, so he does 11 months in the Hanoi Hilton and uh, we had an idea about we wanted to honor two or three Hoosiers who had amazing military careers and then went into politics. And so the three that we chose were uh, uh, obviously Kernan was one of them. And then uh, we had, uh, we had uh, Senator Luger was the second one. And the third one was uh, our good friend from Rome, Indiana. You know who I'm talking about? 
No, not off the top of my head. Okay, another hint. He was the last governor to be served one term. Oh, yeah, Whitcomb. Yeah, exactly. Whitcomb. I didn't know where he was from, but Whitcomb's story about his his exploits. I mean, Bregador. Yeah, if it's not a movie, I don't know what is. Yeah. So anyway, uh, and you know, so what we did was my job was to get the artifacts from all of them. And so uh, I called I called up Governor Joe and I said, hey, you know, he had just he and Maggie had just moved into a new condo up in South Bend. And uh, if you don't know about Governor, you ought to read about him because, you know, he had the baseball career and he's big, big fundraiser for Notre Dame. And he's just Mr. South Bend. You know, he just he's done everything up there. And so I, I said, uh, I said, hey, Governor, I said, uh, we're going to we're going to put some politicians in the in the museum because we think it's important for people to know that um, service members and, and politicians, you know, a lot of people have done that, but not, not like the ones that we're going to choose. And we want you to be in it. And he said, no, 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 Stuart. He says, that, he says, uh, I'm not, I'm not worthy of that. I said, well, don't, don't argue with me, governor, because we're going to do that. And I want to know when I can come to South Bend and look at your artifacts. And he said, you can come up anytime. And I said, okay. So we went up and I took one of my museum people with me and, uh, we were going through the boxes and, and uh, I was opening up boxes. Everybody, uh, everybody was opening up boxes and I opened up this box and inside of it, Robert, was a striped POW. Unit. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I looked at it and I looked at him and I said, how in the world did you get that out of there? He says, I put it in a duffel bag and, and, and got on the airplane. Well, for those that are not familiar with that, because people that are in the age group where they remember seeing the the Viet the the, uh, the Vietnam uh, POWs, our people that were in cap in captivity, they always showed them in the dark brown, the you know the brown khaki type with the pants and the jacket matched. But when they were behind the wire, they had these striped uh, purple and they were actually kind of a grape color with gray stripes on it. So I looked at it and he said, uh, what that is, don't you? I said, yes, sir, I sure do. And uh, he says, uh, he says, do you want it? And I said, oh, he says, he says, let me think about it. And I said, okay. So I, I just dropped it right there uh, because of the hesitation. And so we were, we were talking about some other stuff and we finally, we got the stuff and I just put it back in the box and put it back where I found it. And so we go downstairs and Maggie was down there. So I got a big hug from Maggie and she's just a wonderful person. And uh, she goes, Joe, because she, she wanted to get that stuff out of the house. That's what she wanted to do. She wanted to get as much of it out of the house as possible. And she said, Joe, did, did you know, does, did you take care of Stuart and the other fellow? I said, yeah. He says, yeah, well, they did. He says, he wants the POW uniform, but uh, I said, I, I think I'm going to hold on to it a little bit. I said, I said, that's great. And she looked at him and she went, Joe, go get it. <laughs> Give it to him. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm in the middle of a family feud here. I said, no, really, it's okay. Whenever you're ready, we'll be happy to have it. Joe, you know, like that. And he went and got it. And now we have it on display. But just a real quick story about, about Governor Joe. And it, this, I think this says amazing things about the man. Remember when I told you the vigilante was shot down by a service air missile? Right. What, what happened was Joe found out who fired that Sam and they became best of friends. And Joe went to visit him in Vietnam several times. They were Facebook buddies. They talked about their grandkids and he actually traveled to Vietnam to spend time with this guy that shot a surfaced air missile to blow him out of the sky. You don't meet people like that every day. And or, just, just an or, amazing person. Or ever. Or ever, exactly. I wore, I was communications director for the Indiana Republican Party from March, from May 2006 to October 2007. And the entire time I worked for Murray Clark and Jennifer Hollowell and Kevin Ober at the Indiana Republican Party, I wore joe kernan's pow bracelet oh wow and nobody ever told me that i shouldn't or i couldn't 
We've come to the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask our guest the same five questions. You're joining an elite uh, crew here, General Goodwin. So uh, let's hope your answers measure up to Mayor Ballard's or you're in big trouble. Daniel. Well, the bar better be a little bit higher than that, but just not, not <laughs> Danielle, are you ready? I'm ready. All right, General. What was your very first job? Uh, working in a gas station. Okay. How about your first concert? Um, I believe it was the Beach Boys. I think that's been given before, but what a good one. Um, how about your a book that you've read that you would recommend to others, you'd recommend to our listeners? Absolutely, called The General and the Jaguar. It's an amazing book because what it does is um, it talks about Pancho Villa and General Blackjack Pershing. And so what Pancho Villa was Mexico, obviously, and what he was doing was that he was coming across the border and terrorizing the towns along the border to the point where he would get the young men that were military age and he'd bring one out into the, into the middle of the, of the town and uh, shoot him and say, okay, who, who, who's going to be the next one? Are you going to come and be with us and fight? Or are you going to get shot? And so the, the Jaguar was Pancho Villa and the general was General Blackjack Pershing. And what it does is it talks about him because I don't, and I know you don't have much time, but the fact is he is the most senior military person in the history of our country. He, he achieved something that only one other person had achieved. And that was a guy named George Washington, but he never wore the rank. Pershing did wear the rank. And the fact of the matter was that he was the most senior person ever, even with five-star generals during World War II, because that was a temporary rank. And so uh, that's why we have Pershing Auditorium. And he was, the, he was in charge of the, uh, all the Americans during World War I. Just an amazing man. But that story about these two minds and, he, and General Pershing never did catch him. The General and the Jaguar. That's the title, right? Yes, ma'am. Excellent. Okay. Next question. If you could be there and witness yourself a moment in history, what, what moment would you want to have, to have witnessed? The day that General Pershing, uh, the, the 4th of July in 1927, when General Pershing laid the cornerstone for the war memorial. Excellent. And then what the a, last. What a great answer. Uh, yes, it is. And so the last of the five questions, General, if you could have two hours off the record dinner with somebody who is living, who would you want to sit down and talk to? That's, that is a real tough one. I, uh, I can tell you it wouldn't be a movie star. It wouldn't be a, an athlete. It would be someone that uh, someone that had done something very special for their country. Um, I've got a hint. I've got a suggestion that that takes both those into account. I'm, I'm Gary, ready. Gary Sinise. Gary Sinise would definitely be on the list. Um, I think that. Uh, the other one I was thinking about was a Medal of Honor recipient by the name of Del Crandall, uh, helicopter pilot. But uh, any, in fact, any of the any of the recipients that I've met uh, would love to do that because it's uh, they're special. And the fact of the matter is that, uh, and if I could, I just want to leave you with one thought, and that is that these people that have put the cloth of their nation on their backs. And we all took an oath. And that oath says that we'll obey the orders that them, those appointed over us. It will defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And after we take that oath, so help me God, they signed, they put a piece of paper. And Robert, I know you remember the day you took that oath, because we all remember that. But what you're doing when these young people and everyone who has ever joined the United States military takes that oath what you're saying is that you will give up to and including your life to protect people, Americans, that you'll never know or never meet so that they can live free. And when you think about it, that's quite a promise. 
And so when I meet any veteran, I don't care what their job was. I don't care how many, how many years or, you know, they served at all. But I think that one of the things that we need to do in this country is that we need to forget about all this differences and we need to think about what makes us the same. And what makes us the same is that we're Americans. And I got to tell you, I have a really bad feeling that if we don't turn this around and start thinking about regardless of our color or race or skin or our sexual orientation or political ambition, if we don't turn this around, somebody else is going to tell us how to live and we won't like it. We won't like it at all. We are Americans first. And all these people that went before us and the things that they did so that we can live free. And we got to quit taking that for granted because it's not, it's not something that needs taken for granted. What we need to do is that we need to start thinking about what's really important in this country. And that is that we're all the same. One team, one fight. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery. your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been retired Brigadier General Stuart Goodwin, who runs, if I may say, the most efficient operation in the most beautiful building in this state, and that is the Indiana War Memorial. Our co-host has been Girl Scouts Central Indiana CEO Danielle Shockey. General, thank you very much for your time today. We enjoyed it. It's my pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.